Section 32 of The Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government, Volume 2, by Jefferson Davis. Part 4, Chapter 44a. Subjugation of the Northern States, Humiliating Spectacle of New York, Ringing of a Little Bell, Seizure and Imprisonment of Citizens, Number Seized, Paper Safeguards of Liberty, Other Safeguards, Suspension of the Writ of Habeas Corpus, Absolutely Forbidden with One Exception. How Done not able to authorize another abundant protective provisions in new york but all failed case of pierce butler arrest of secretary cameron the president assumes the responsibility of the crime no heed given to the writ of habeas corpus issued by the court the governor passive words of justice nelson Prison overflowing. How relieved. Oath required of applicants for relief. Oath declined by some. Reasons. Order forbidding the employment of counsel by prisoners. Victims in almost every northern state. Defeat at the elections. Result. Suit for damages commenced. Congress interferes to protect the guilty. State courts subjugated. How suspend habeas corpus? Congress violates the Constitution. What was New York? Writ suspended throughout the United States. What is loyalty? Military domination. Correspondence between General Dix and Governor Seymour. Seizure of newspapers. Governor orders arrest of offenders. Interference with the state election. Vote of the soldiers. State agents arrested. Provost marshals appointed in every northern state. Their duties. Sustained by force. Trials by military commission. Trials at Washington. Assassination of the President. Trial of Henry Wurz. Efforts to implicate the author. Investigation of a committee of Congress as to complicity in the assassination. Arrest, trial, and banishment of Clement C. Vallandigham. Assertions of Governor Seymour on the case. Now follows the humiliating spectacle of the subjugation of the state government of New York, the Empire State, as she calls herself, where, with all her men and treasures, it might have been supposed that some stanch defenders of constitutional liberty would have sprung up. 
on the contrary under the pretext of preserving the union her deluded children aided to destroy the constitution on which the union was founded and put forth all their strength to exalt the government of the united states to supremacy thus the states were brought to a condition of subjugation and their governments subverted from the protection of the rights for which they were instituted these unalienable rights of the people were left without a protector or a shield before the crushing hand of the usurper the sovereignty of the people was set aside and in its place arose the sovereignty of the government of the united states with the foundations undermined the superstructure subverted the ends for which the great republic was organized entirely lost to sight and the true balance of the system destroyed unless the dormant virtue and love for their inherited rights shall arouse the citizens to a vigorous effort to restore the republican institutions and powers of the states the emperors and kings of the earth have only to await calmly the lapse of time to behold a fulfillment of their evil prophecies in regard to the great republic of the world to show how the laws were disregarded and how despotically the personal liberty of the citizen was invaded let this example bear witness the secretary of state at washington william h seward a favored son of the state of new york would ring a little bell which brought to him a messenger to whom was given a secret order to arrest and confine in fort lafayette a person designated this order was sent by telegraph to the united states marshal of the district in which would be found the person who was to be arrested the arrest being forcibly made by the marshal with armed attendants without even the form of a warrant the prisoner without the knowledge of any charge against him was conveyed to fort hamilton and turned over to the commandant an aide with a guard of soldiers then conveyed him in a boat to fort lafayette and delivered him to the keeper in charge who gave a receipt for the prisoner he was then divested of any weapons money valuables or papers in his possession his baggage was opened and searched a soldier then took him in charge to the designated quarter which was a portion of one of the casements for guns lighted only from the porthole and occupied by seven or eight other prisoners all were subjected to prison fare some were citizens of new york and the others of different states this manner of imprisonment was subsequently put under the direction of the secretary of war and continued at intervals until the close of the war in the brief period between july one and october nineteen eighteen sixty one the secretary of state william h seward made such diligent use of his little bell that one hundred and seventy-five of the most respectable citizens of the country were consigned to imprisonment in this fort lafayette a strong fortress in the lower part of the harbor of new york a decent regard for the memory of the friend of washington and for the services rendered to the colonies in their struggle for independence might have led mr seward to select for such base uses some other place than that which bore the honored name of lafayette the american citizen has always like the ancient roman felt that his personal liberty was secure he supposed himself to be surrounded with numerous paper safeguards which together with the love of justice and respect for law 
common to his fellow-citizens, would be sufficient for his protection against any usurper. These now proved to be as weak as the paper upon which they were written. What were these supposed safeguards? There was the Constitution of the State of New York, an instrument for the protection and government of the people. It had received the consent of the people of the State, who were governed by it, and therefore its powers were just powers. Its first object was to protect the unalienable rights of its citizens, relative to which it contains various provisions in its Bill of Rights, its declarations respecting personal liberty, its regulations to secure and enforce the great writ of freemen, the habeas corpus, the powers granted to the courts which it created, the legislature, the executive, in whose hands was placed the richest purse and the strongest sword of the sovereign states to protect the rights of its citizens. Further safeguards were placed in the Constitution of the United States. These were designated to restrain that government from any invasion of the citizens' personal liberty. They are as follows. The right of the people to be secure in their persons shall not be violated, and no warrant shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the persons to be seized. Again, no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Again, no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime, unless upon presentment or indictment of a grand jury. Again, in all criminal prosecutions the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. Among the enumerated powers of Congress is the following clause. The privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended, unless when in cases of rebellion or invasion the public safety may require. This clause first forbids the suspension of the writ absolutely. A single exception is then made by the words, unless the public safety may require. A condition is attached to this exception, which still farther limits it, by the words, in cases of rebellion or invasion. There is still another and far more sweeping limitation attached to this clause. The writ must be suspended by an act of Congress, which can be passed only when Congress is in session. This suspension must be positive and absolute by Congress, not indefinite and dependent on any future contingency. For the acts of Congress are not absolute powers. If between enactment and enforcement they can be set aside by a contingency, unless such contingency was attached in the clause of the grant creating the power. But in these words of the Constitution there is no contingency expressed. Congress alone, by positive enactment, can suspend the writ of habeas corpus. It cannot authorize the President to suspend its force, nor has he any authority under the Constitution to do it. 
neither can Congress make an intermittent suspension of the force of the writ, but it must be absolute under the specific condition. It is evident that the citizen of New York was abundantly provided with the safeguards of personal liberty, yet they all proved to be of no avail to secure and enforce his right in the hour of trial. A few instances will afford an illustration of the facts. Mr. Pierce Butler was suspected of corresponding with persons in the Confederate States. He was arrested in Philadelphia on August 19, 1861, by order of Simon Cameron, then Secretary of War, without process of law and without any assigned cause. His trunks and drawers, wardrobe and entire apartments, were searched and his private papers taken by the marshal and his four assistants. His office was also examined and his books and papers taken, and within an hour he was on his way to Fort Lafayette with an armed guard. After five weeks of detention he was liberated. No reason was given for his discharge any more than for his arrest. As Mr. Cameron was about to sail as minister to Russia in January ensuing, he was arrested for assault and battery and false imprisonment at the suit of Mr. Butler. The case was brought to the knowledge of the President of the United States, and on April 18, 1862, the Secretary of State, Seward, replied as follows, quote, The communication has been submitted to the President, and I am directed by him to say in reply that he avows the proceeding of Mr. Cameron referred to as one taken by him when Secretary of War, under the President's directions, and deemed necessary for the prompt suppression of the existing rebellion. The writ of habeas corpus was issued by some of the state courts, directing the officer in command at the fort to bring some one or other of the prisoners into court for an investigation of the cause and authority for his detention but no attention was given to these writs by the officer. Neither did the governor of the state make any effort to enforce the processes of the courts. He, perhaps, expected that his efforts might be resisted by an overpowering force. But expectations, of whatsoever nature, do not justify or excuse the neglect of a positive duty. It is through such weaknesses that the liberties of mankind have been too often lost. Thus the Constitution, the laws, the courts, the executive of the State of New York, were subverted, turned aside from the end for which they were instituted, and all the specific arrangements were of no avail to secure this guaranteed right of its citizens. Probably every one of the prisoners was entirely innocent of any act whatever that was criminal under the laws, either of the State or of the United States. In opinion they were opposed to the military proceedings of the government of the United States, and these opinions they had expressed, which liberty is a part of the birthright of freemen. Indeed, Judge Nelson of the Supreme Court of the United States in the circuit of New York, in an opinion delivered about this time, thus expressed himself, quote, Words, oral, written, or printed, however treasonable, seditious, or criminal of themselves, do not constitute an overt act of treason 
within the definition of the crime. When spoken, written, or printed, in relation to an act or acts, which, if committed, with a treasonable design, might constitute such overt act, they are admissible as evidence, tending to characterize it and show the intent with which the act was committed. End quote. Finally, the prison in New York Harbor became so full that many prisoners were sent to Fort Warren in the harbor of Boston. At this time the government of the United States used the old capital at Washington, Fort McHenry of Baltimore, Fort Lafayette at New York, and Fort Warren at Boston, for the confinement of those whom the usurper designated as, quote, state prisoners, end quote. Still further to relieve the fullness of the prisons, two men, John A. Dix, of the Army, and Edwards Pierpont, of Civil Life, were sent to investigate the cases of the prisoners, and release some who were willing to take an, quote, oath of allegiance, end quote. Next it was made a condition precedent to an investigation that the said oath should be taken by the prisoner. As an instance, this proposal was made to two persons named Flanders, citizens of the interior of New York. The oath was as follows. Quote, I do solemnly swear that I will support, protect, and defend the Constitution and government of the United States against all enemies, whether foreign or domestic, and that I will bear true faith, allegiance, and loyalty to the same, any ordinance, resolution, or law of any state convention or legislature, to the contrary notwithstanding, and farther that I do this with a full determination, pledge, and purpose, without any mental reservation or evasion whatsoever, and further that I will well and faithfully perform all the duties which may be required of me by law." These persons declined to take the prescribed oath. The reasons which they gave for this refusal furnish painful evidence of the extreme subjugation of the government of the state of New York, and its silent submission to the arbitrary and unconstitutional acts of the government of the United States, even at the sacrifice of the most sacred rights of freemen. They said, quote, We have been guilty of no offense against the laws of our country, but have simply exercised our constitutional rights as free citizens in the open and manly expression of our opinions upon public affairs. We have been placed here without legal charges, or indeed any charges whatsoever being made against us, and upon no legal process, but upon an arbitrary and illegal order of the Honorable William H. Seward, Secretary of State of the United States. Every moment of our detention here is a denial of our most sacred rights. We are entitled to, and hereby demand, an unconditional discharge, and while we could cheerfully take the oath prescribed by the Constitution of the United States, because we are, always have been, and ever intend to be, loyal to that instrument, though at the same time protesting against the right of the government to impose even such oath upon us as the condition of our discharge, we cannot consent to take the oath now required of us, because we hold no office of any kind under the government of the United States, and it is an oath unknown to 
and unauthorized by the Constitution, and commits us to the support of the government, though it may be acting in direct conflict with the Constitution, and deprives us of the right of freely discussing, and by peaceful and constitutional methods, opposing its measures, a right which is sacred to freedom, and which no American citizen should voluntarily surrender. That such is the interpretation put upon this oath by the government, and such its intended effect, is plainly demonstrated by the fact that it is dictated to this as a condition of our release from an imprisonment inflicted upon us, for to no other cause than that we have exercised the above-specified constitutional rights. End quote. One important fact which illustrates the flagrant outrage committed on all these prisoners should not be omitted. The Constitution of the United States declares as follows. Quote, In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. End quote. On December 3, 1861, the commanding officer at Fort Lafayette came to the prisoners' quarters and read a document of which the following is a copy. Quote, to the political prisoners in Fort Lafayette, I am instructed by the Secretary of State to inform you that the Department of State of the United States will not recognize any one as an attorney for political prisoners, and will look with distrust upon all applications for release through such channels, and that such applications will be regarded as additional reasons for declining to release the prisoners and further that if such prisoners wish to make any communication to the government they are at liberty to make it directly to the state department seth c howley space will not permit me to further notice the instances of this immense class of cases in almost every northern state the victims of this violence were to be found that there was no just cause for these invasions of the rights of the states and of the citizens was demonstrated in the most decisive manner at this time november four eighteen sixty two the friends of the administration of the united states government were decisively defeated at the elections on november twenty second ensuing the war department issued an order releasing all except prisoners of war the order was muffled up in a phraseology suited to hide from the observation of the people that the result of the elections had stricken home to the sensibilities of the usurpers. It said, quote, Ordered, one, that all persons now in military custody who have been arrested for discouraging volunteer enlistments, opposing the draft, or for otherwise giving aid and comfort to the enemy, in states where the draft has been made or the quota of volunteers and militia has been furnished, shall be discharged from further military restraint. Thus these arrests were for a short period suspended, and then vigorously renewed. Footnote 91 The first act of Congress providing for an enrollment and draft was passed on March 8, 1863 three and a half months later than this order. End footnote. Many of these persons, who had been illegally seized and imprisoned, now commenced suits for damages. 
this led to another step on the part of the government of the united states by which the judiciary of the state was entirely subverted and deprived of all jurisdiction in these cases congress passed an act on march three eighteen sixty three which provided that any order of the president of the united states or arrest made under his authority when pleaded should be a defence in all courts to any action or prosecution for any search seizure arrest or imprisonment made done or committed or any acts omitted to be done under or by virtue of such order or under color of any law of congress the act further provided that all actions against officers and others for torts and arrests might be removed for trial to the next circuit court of the united states held in the district and said quote, it shall then be the duty of the state court to accept the surety and proceed no further in the cause or prosecution and the bail that shall have been originally taken shall be discharged end quote. It will be noticed that by the terms of this act the case could be removed to the circuit court when the defendant quote, filed a petition stating the facts verified by affidavit. End quote. Thus the jurisdiction of all the courts of the State of New York was made to terminate and cease upon the simple word of the defendant accompanied by an affidavit. But these courts were instituted by the consent of the governed for the protection of the personal freedom of the citizen yet in the cases brought before them they ordered the removal on the ground that they involved the question of the constitutionality of an act of congress over which the courts of the united states had a jurisdiction the absurdity of this plea is manifest for it is founded on the presumption that the question whether under authority from the president of the united states any one without intervention of the judicial tribunals can incarcerate a citizen is a question which can be treated as constituting a case arising under the constitution of the united states any statute authorizing such acts is palpably void and not entitled to be a ground for a bearing under an appeal the subjugation of the government of the state of new york was made in another section of the same act of congress of march three eighteen sixty three it declares quote, that during the present rebellion the president of the united states whenever in his judgment the public safety may require it is authorized to suspend the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus in any case throughout the united states or any part thereof let us turn to the words of the constitution of the united states which are contained in the grant of powers to congress quote, the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless when in cases of rebellion or invasion the public safety may require it it will be seen that two facts are required to exist before the congress of the united states can suspend the privilege of this writ congress must therefore determine the existence of these facts before it has power constitutionally to act if it finds either fact to exist and not the other it has no power to suspend the privilege of the writ there must be rebellion and the public safety must require the suspension when congress finds these facts to exist it can enact the suspension it is the judgment of congress alone that can determine that the public safety requires the suspension 
this cannot be delegated to the judgment of any other department of the government therefore when congress tells the president in the above-mentioned act that he is authorized to suspend the privilege of this writ whenever in his judgment the public safety may require it then that body undertakes to do that for which it has no authority in the constitution the states delegated the power solely to congress an act to transfer the trust to any other depository could rightfully have no force whatever now the state of new york in which this writ was thus suspended by the government of the united states was one of the northern states and a most ardent advocate of the union it had contributed more men and money to support the government of the united states than any other state and then some whole sections of the states peace reigned throughout all its borders yet in this quiet and loyal state whose people had given so freely to aid the government of the united states a claim was now set up to the right to nullify the rights and immunities of every citizen by that government which had already nullified the powers of every court in the state this was done by the declaration of the president that quote, the public safety end quote, required the suspension of the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus the act of congress was passed on march three eighteen sixty three and on september fifteenth the president issued his proclamation and referring to the authority claimed to have been granted by the act he proceeded to say quote, whereas in the judgment of the president the public safety does require that the privilege of said writ shall now be suspended throughout the united states in cases where by the authority of the president of the united states military naval and civil officers of the united states or either of them hold persons under their custody either as prisoners of war spies or aiders or abettors of the enemy or officers soldiers or seamen enrolled drafted or mustered or enlisted in or belonging to the land or naval forces of the united states or as deserters therefrom or otherwise amenable to military law or to the rules or articles of war or the rules and regulations prescribed for military and naval service by the authority of the president of the united states or for resisting a draft or for any other offence against the military or naval service therefore i do hereby proclaim and make known that the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus is suspended throughout the united states in the several cases before mentioned throughout the duration of said rebellion no autocrat ever issued an edict more destructive of the natural right to personal liberty not only was the state government of new york deprived of the power to fulfill its obligations to protect and preserve this right of its citizens but every state government of the northern states was in like manner subverted the only distinction known among the citizens was that established by the government of the united states in answer to the question applied to each one quote, is he loyal or disloyal end quote the only test of loyalty was based on submission and as usual in such cases the most abject in spirit were the most loyal to the usurper ail those liberties of conduct and action 
which stamped the true freemen everywhere throughout the world, disappeared. And the suppressed voice, the apprehensive look, and the cautious movements were substituted for the free speech, the open brow, and the fearless tread which had characterized the American. Another step in the subjugation of the government of the State of New York was made by the domination over it of the military power of the government of the United States. This took place in a time of peace in the State, when the courts were all open and the civil administration of affairs was unobstructed. On July 30, 1863, the United States commanding general of that department addressed a letter to Governor Seymour saying, quote, as the draft under the Act of Congress of March 3, 1863, for enrolling and calling out the national forces, will probably be resumed in this city, New York, at an early day, I am desirous of knowing whether the military power of the state may be relied on to enforce the execution of the law, in case of forcible resistance to it. I am very anxious there should be perfect harmony of action, between the federal government and that of the state of New York. And if, under your authority to see the laws faithfully executed, I can feel assured that the act referred to will be enforced, I need not ask the War Department to put at my disposal, for the purpose, troops in the service of the United States. End quote. Governor Seymour replied on August 3rd. Quote, I have this day sent to the President of the United States a communication in relation to the draft in this state. I believe his answer will relieve you and me from the painful questions growing out of an armed enforcement of the conscription law in this patriotic state, which has contributed so largely and freely to the support of the national cause during the existing war. End quote. On August 8th, General Dix writes again, Quote, it is my duty as commanding officer of the troops in the service of the United States in this department, if called on by the enrolling officers, to aid them in resisting forcibly opposition to the execution of the law, and it is from an earnest desire to avoid the necessity of employing for the purpose any of my forces which have been placed here to garrison the forts and protect the public property that I wished to see the draft enforced by the military power of the state, in case of armed or organized resistance to it. I designed, if your cooperation could not be relied on, to ask the general government for a force which would be adequate to ensure the execution of the law, and to meet any emergency growing out of it." Meantime, Governor Seymour received no answer to his letter to the President. He had asked for a suspension of the draft, on the ground that the enrollments in the city were excessive as compared with other portions of the state, and that due credit was not given for the past. He therefore replied to General Dix, saying, quote, As you state in your letter that it is your duty to enforce the Act of Congress, and as you apprehend its provisions may excite popular resistance, it is proposed you should know the position which will be held by the state authorities. Of course, under no circumstances can they perform duties expressly confided to others, nor can they undertake to relieve others from their proper responsibilities, 
but there can be no violations of good order, or riotous proceedings, no disturbances of the public peace, which are not infractions of the laws of the state, and those laws will be enforced under all circumstances. I shall take care that all the executive officers of this state perform their duties vigorously and thoroughly, and, if need be, the military power will be called into requisition. As you are an officer of the general government and not of the state, it does not become me to make suggestions to you with regard to your action under a law of Congress. You will, of course, be governed by your instructions and your own views of duty. End quote. On August 18th, General Dix thus wrote to the governor, quote, Not having received an answer from you, I applied to the Secretary of War on the 14th inst for a force adequate to the object. The call was promptly responded to, and I shall be ready to meet all opposition to the draft. End quote. The force sent by the Secretary of War to keep the peace and subjugate the sovereignty of the people amounted to forty-two regiments and two batteries. There was no occasion for the exertion of their powers, but the wrong to the state of New York was none the less gross. End of section 32 Recording by Catherine Riley June 2015